This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 21st, 2015 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Passwords. We have so many of them. Studies show that 10% of them are the word password. I was supposed to feel bad about that. Like, what if someone does crack the code to my baseball prospectus subscription? What are they going to find out? CC Sabathia's fastball velocity? I don't know. Anyway, my password to baseball prospectus is not the word password. It's also not Sabathia. However, my password to a different website about flags might be Sabathia. I don't want to say. My password to baseball prospectus might be Kiribati. Again, I don't want to say. In fact, I actually can't remember. Which brings me to how to solve this problem of too many passwords. Jonathan LeBlanc, he is the PayPal guru who is rethinking, you might say, disrupting passwords. He says that passwords will rely on biometrics, but not just fingerprints, not just pictures of the eyeball, because, you know, those could lead to false positives or when you knock out the bad guy, but then drag him up and put his eye right in front of the eyeball detector thing. And then you gain access to the evil mastermind's inner sanctum. You know how that works. LeBlanc wants, quote, embeddable, injectable, and ingestible devices. He says that ingestible capsules can detect glucose levels and other unique internal features, internal features, that could use a person's body as a way to identify them and to beam that data out, and you've got a password right there. It's like, hold on, hold on. I just need to log on to Expedia to check out prices on flights to Dubrovnik. Let me just induce vomiting to remember my password. Hold on, hold on. Yes, I know I'm risking password-induced bulimia, or you go to the ATM and you're like, hold up, guys, I just got to drool on this keypad to get 100 bucks out because I need to buy some emetics to induce vomiting. Yeah, you know what? Maybe I'll just buy a copy of The Godfather 3. That usually works, too. On the show today, all right, I might not understand all the nuances of swallowable passwords, I'll admit it, but I do understand knishes, and those could be swallowable. We'll hobkanob about knishes. And uh, I do glean and will communicate to you in the spiel the passing of Gary. Not a guy named Gary. All guys, or almost all guys named Gary. The name is on the endangered species list. But first, here's a name, Jeb. There need to be more Jebs. But there's just one famous one, and I think he's being underestimated. Dynastic, retread, worn. These are the pejoratives that attach themselves to Jeb Bush, but maybe we should stop playing handicapper and just listen to what he's saying. And I want to put forth an idea that Jeb Bush is doing something pretty remarkable 
as far as Republican candidates go, as the leading Republican candidate goes, he's upending the notion that you have to run to the right to win, that you have to satisfy conservatives. His brother, this guy named George, maybe you heard about him, he reinvented the notion of how a presidential campaign is run. He followed a game plan that was devised by Karl Rove that said, forget tacking to the middle, just appeal to the base, inspire the base, and then you could govern only the base. Jeb Bush is doing almost exactly the opposite. Joining me now is Mark Caputo of Politico. Politico. For years, he worked for the Miami Herald. He knows Jeb Bush well. Hello, Mark. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So Jeb Bush has said Republicans have to lose the primary to win the general election. I don't know if a lot of people in the primary like him for saying that, but knowing him as you do, did that kind of uh, tactic or admission surprise you? Well, a, a quick correction, not to be presumptuous, is he said he has to be willing to lose the primary to win the general. He wasn't right. saying, hey, I want to lose the primary and therefore I'll win the general. Right. What he's saying is, is like, a candidate needs not to pander. A candidate needs to be his own man, his own self or his own or her own woman, and I guess in the case of Hillary Clinton. And that's kind of a veiled reference to the problem that Jeb implicitly and somewhat explicitly said Mitt Romney had. Uh, so that having been said, one of the things Jeb doesn't necessarily do well is kowtow a lot. You know, this guy was a governor who ran the state, I wouldn't say with an iron fist, but he got almost everything he wanted. Now he's campaigning for president, and he's looking around. He saw the contortions that Mitt Romney went through, call himself like a severe conservative, and that's not Jeb's style, and that's not what he's going to do. And so he let people know, like, hey, look, I'm not going to pander. Right. But I think part of Jeb's problem is, is that in him saying I'm not going to pander, he's kind of forgotten how to talk conservative at the same time. And that's going to trip him up. Right. So Jeb is looking at the contortions, not just the words, but how Mitt Romney ran away from his signature achievement, which was health care in the state. And Jeb is saying, hey, here are a couple achievements that I am going to stand by for a number of reasons. Maybe one of them is the Mitt Romney example, things like vouchers, things like Common Core, all the education stuff. You know, that said... Has he shown a willingness to give the people what they want, enough of what they want, if the people are Republican, base Republican voters? I think to a degree, certainly with Common Core, he's been saying for a few months now, like, look, hey, you might not, fine, you, know, you guys don't want to call, call it Common Core, call it something else. But I'm still for high standards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in that regard, yes, Jeb is kind of changing his rhetoric to a degree. But what Jeb is kind of forgetting and being a longtime veteran of battles with teacher unions over high-stake testing is what he might not realize is that regarding Common Core is that there is a fatigue among parents across the spectrum with high-stakes testing. <laughs> and uh, that might actually be haunting him whether or not it's called Common Core. That's true. But on the other hand, you could look at that and, you know, the Wall Street Journal in writing about him says his refusal to back off those positions, meaning positions that he took as Florida governor, represent a gamble that Republican voters will credit him for the conservative goals he pursued as Florida governor, such as pushing school vouchers and tax cuts. But you know what? Common Core school vouchers, are these Republican values or are these like the Arne Duncan platform? Platform. That sounds like stuff the Obama administration is doing. Not that it's not conservative. It just doesn't seem the most conservative thing uh, you could choose to be. Well, Scott, vouchers, vouchers and school choice are still pretty well firmly within the Republican or conservative firmament. But it does surprise me as a Florida reporter who covered Jeb Bush and watched him sign almost every bit of gun rights legislation that came across his desk, 
who cut billions of taxes, who signed almost every bit of anti-abortion and or pro-life legislation he could, who passed lots of lock up laws, who went out of his way to try to keep Terry Schiavo alive, who frequently tussled with unions, who changed the way in which affirmative action was administered in the state, essentially ending portions of it, that now this guy's considered a moderate or a liberal. It's like, if he really is, it's an example of the Republican Party drifting a little farther right than most people. If they step back and look at the guy's record, be like, yeah, this guy governed as a conservative. Do you think he's going to change between now and the first primaries and caucuses uh, 230-something days away? You know... Certain covering Florida politics, it's, it's always very dangerous to make predictions about what people are going to do in a campaign. <laughs> so, I mean, who would have thought that two guys, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, protege and mentor, neighbors and friends who literally live a five-minute drive away from each other, were going to be two potential top Republican candidates going at each other in a GOP primary for president? Uh, most people didn't expect it, and here we are. So I'm going to sum up the very interesting uh, insights you laid on us. I came in thinking, wow, he really is more moderate. He's kind of almost like John Huntsman, who was didn't get a vote because we were told that Republicans just aren't where John Huntsman is. But you're pointing out the real Jeb Bush is more conservative. And the reason he's not emphasizing that is he's kind of stubborn. I would certainly say that he's a very stubborn person. I mean, now, don't get me wrong. He does believe in a pathway to citizenship. And his other position is, look, we need more high-stakes testing and or testing that makes us competitive with the new economy, the new world, the new technologies, and make us competitive with other nations. And he's not going to back off of that, whether you call it Common Core or not, and that's his position. Mark Caputo covers Florida, covers Jeb Bush, covers it all for Politico. Thank you, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I have been telling you how Stamps.com is great for business, depending on the business that you have. For instance, if you do mail order anything, that's good. If you uh, do shadow puppets at kids' parties, well, I don't know, maybe you got to send out mass mailings too. Here's a validation from a listener who does shadow puppets. Oh no, wait, wait a minute. Mark Allender is a graphic designer, but he signed up for Stamps.com after hearing about it on The Gist. Mark is a self-employed entrepreneur. When his small business began to have a need for regular mailing and shipping, he signed up for Stamps and it's really working for him. Why? Because he prints the stamps right from his computer. It's a big difference in the business's shipping operations. He says that Stamps.com made it possible to change his business. And you can too. Wait, change Mark's business? No, get Stamps.com. Use the special promo code THEGIST for a special offer. It includes a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer, a digital scale, up to $55 free postage, and a booklet on shadow puppets for kids. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in the gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now, two rap songs about Knishes. Here's rap song one. That was by MF Doom. Knishes in the title. Here's Shirt. Sometimes it goes by T-shirt, but you know him as Shirt. Penny, all I want's a fucking Knish. Just a Knish. I don't give a shit about your shit. Fuck shit. We've all been there. All I want's a Knish. A fucking Knish. I don't give a shit about your shit.
Joining me now is Laura Silver. She's the author of Kanish, In Search of the Jewish Soul Food. Hello, Laura. Hey, Mike. You ever been there? You ever been there, where, that place where sure it was, that all you want is a fucking Kanish? Well, you know, you said MF Doom. You played his clip. Yeah. And I think Kanishes have gone street, even if that wasn't the initial intention. You know, everyone loves a Kanish. They're basically engraved in the sidewalks of this town and in the minds of anyone who lives here. So I know that we have some listeners who tune into the gist and hear the the spiel and said, what, what's that cute little word spiel? Maybe they're not steeped in Yiddishisms. Maybe they need a little Kanish orientation. So give us, give us the outlines. What's a Kanish? A Kanish is a pillow of dough mm. stuffed most commonly with onion-strewn mashed potatoes. It can have a lot of different fillings, savory or sweet. Kanish is to you, I think more so than other food or even other ethnic food, knishes mean more than what they taste like or their mouthfeel. They are definitely a connection to a culture and uh, the place you grew up. And that's, I know it's true for you. Yeah, definitely. It's Queens for me is where I grew up, but I went to Brooklyn a lot. My family had a knish shop we went to all the time. But I think knishes were just in the air. When I was growing up, knishes were featured on Welcome Back Cotter, and they're just part of the landscape of New York City, right? Uh, Kanish was one of the sweat hogs. It was it was uh, Bright Barberino, Horshack, and Kanish, if I remember. Well, right. right. I think that was the first name for Juan Epstein, but they <laughs> settled on Juan Epstein <laughs> yeah, instead. Yeah. He was a Jewish Puerto Rican, yes. Right. So it's um, what are they? What's the Puerto Rican equivalent of a Kanish? Would you say? I don't know. What would it be? Because that's one of my goals is to establish a definitive list of Kanish and cousins, which is any food that's kind of like a Kanish. So what I want to get to: How many Kanish puns would you say are in your book? Kanish oh, in search of the Jewish soul. Not food. as many as there could be. I will say I cut back. Did you use your knife to do that? No, no. that's not a pun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's making fun. Yeah. Um, I say there's a dozen, a healthy dozen. Uh-huh. But you know, Kanish. A lot of people think words that start with a K are inherently funny. Mel Brooks said that. Yeah. So I don't. The Sunshine Boys. K's he, are funny. Yeah, yeah. K. So it's like I didn't have to do that much. But words that start with a silent K aren't funny, like knife. So why do you pronounce the K in Kanish? Well, it's because where it's from. It The word comes from Ukrainian, Polish, Yiddish, Russian, even German. Old German lays claim to this word through a word called knauchen, which means to grasp or grope. In the polite sense, that's what you do with dough. Yes. So in Polish, it's a pierogi used for mourning. What what is a pierogi used for mourning? A pierogi. Okay, so you know a pierogi, like a Polish pierogi. Well, in Polish lore, there are different kinds of pierogies, Uh like different kinds of cakes, right? You have a cake for a birthday, right? and then you have a cake that might be just more for any another occasion, Mm -hmm. but a birthday cake is special. Birthday cake is special, a wedding cake is special. Right, birthday cake, wedding cake. So pierogies have a similar hierarchy or assignment, and one of them was linked to a mourning ritual or grieving ritual. And it's weird because I didn't know that when I started, but I started this quest for the Kanish after my grandmother died Mm -hmm. and after the shop I would go to with her went out of business. So for me, it was a more, I was sort of grieving also, and I had no idea that that was what the Kanish contained. And is this your grandmother from Riga, from Latvia? Although it wasn't Latvia when she was there? Yeah, exactly. It's, It's Latvia now. But there was no real connection to Latvia. Not really, but what's weird is when I went there, I found a woman who had done some artwork with like Jewish history, and I became friendly with her. So I created a connection. Is there still a big Kanish culture in Latvia? There's no Kanish culture in Latvia that I could figure out. 
But there are some other some foods that were kind of similar, like this compote fruit, which were sort of harkened back to these foods that were similar to the Kanish. The Kanish, I didn't I don't know if it ever had a really close connection to Latvia, but that's sort of in the zone I've established as the Kanish corridor oh. of Eastern Europe. <laughs> Where is it? Poland, right? Well, Poland, yeah. If you think of modern day Lithuania yeah. and go south, yeah. and then a little bit more to the east, like Belarus, Ukraine, all of that would be in an approximate Kanish corridor. I have a map. No, is Beli is is Bialystok. Is that right. in Belarus? No, that's um that's in Poland. Okay. It's right on the Belarusian border. And that's where my family thought we were from. But when we went there, we actually got this document translated that said we are descendants. We had a connection to a town nearby called Kanishin. Are you kidding me? Wow. Can you make that up? Wow. So wow. turns out there's a legend there that links the Kanish to mourning too. Are Kanishas less in some ways, they're not as, they didn't become as popular as the bagel. But, you know, if you go back 30, 40 years, bagels weren't all across America. And people almost had to define the bagel. I remember watching, I forgot if it was Good Times or The Jeffersons or some show, but a black character on a show said, oh, a bagel. I like this Jewish soul food, which is the subtitle of your book. He called the bagel Jewish soul food. So it just goes to show you that bagels were able to enter the mainstream. Can knishes become more popular, do you think? More of a mainstream item. The thing, bagels also got kind of bastardized. If you yeah. think of Lender's bagels yeah. or a cinnamon raisin bagel, now you have like a jalapeno bagel. I mean, kind you know, in a way, I resent this comparison between the bagel and the knish because the knish is its own thing. And I don't know if it needs to go mainstream because it has an analog in almost every culture. Like, what would you say is the Italian equivalent of a knish? Oh, yeah. Something that's stuffed. Well, it's, it's hard like a... for the Italians to keep cheese out of things. Yeah. Yeah. Like, sometimes I think the rice ball might be oh, a yeah. sort of equivalent. A starch only, yeah. Yeah, starch on starch. And I did put together this Italian Jewish food quiz because mm -hmm. the knish that Mrs. Stahl's knish was actually the recipe was bought by an Italian guy. So that got me thinking of all these parallels in Jewish and Italian history in the U.S., New York City, and especially in cooking. There's and a lot of people involved in distributing knishes were Italian, too, and still are. So the knish's sphere of influence might be kind of different. Yes. It has instead of aiming for world domination and getting kind of wonder bready like the bagel did i think it has more, a little more self-respect yeah and looks to find allies in other cultures like samosa empanada um pierogi of course i mean my vision is a global or at least start new york city a citywide baking session of knishing cousins of all ethnicities god she came in with a history, and she leaves us with a call, a call to unity and togetherness. She's Laura Silver, author of Knish, In Search of the Jewish Soul Food. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. And now the spiel, Gary no longer glitters. There were only 28 babies named Gary, born in 2013 in the U.K., the USA is a little bit richer in Gary's. By contrast, the weak notes in the statistic of the week. So the week at the end of that sentence was a lowercase, but we're talking about the magazine the week. Anyway, they say that 37 children were named Loki after the Norse god of mischief, 
You assume it was after the Norse god of mischief. Maybe it was just after a neighbor who was also named Loki. So scientists estimate the last Gary will die by 2150, though maybe before, as their numbers lessen and they lose herd immunity. That's right. Remember this song? Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. Let me say it once again. And you thought the Indiana part was the most behind the times. Uh Uh-uh. It's Gary. So boys' names tend to ebb less precipitously and for more discernible reasons than girls' names ebb. Like, it's like men's fashion. They're tested. They're a little stodgy, but it's true with names too. John, James, William, Michael, Alexander, Daniel, Benjamin, Matthew. They're all in the top 15. Still, they've been that way for years. But girls' names just go out of favor for no real reason. I mean, in the 1960s, so this is a decade, but for the course of that decade, the name Lisa, most popular name in the 60s, 496 1,967, let's round up, half a million girls were named Lisa in that decade. Today, 349 leases. 349 total leases. It's below Briley. There's nothing wrong with Lisa. You can't, it's not a Hortense. It's not a name that just is redolent of oldness. It's just out of fashion. Give you a couple other examples. Karen. You want to know how many Karens there were named in 2013? That's the last year Social Security kept those statistics. Only 727. Barbara. There were 345,000 Barbaras in the 1960s. There were 310 Barbaras in the year 2013. Men's names, there's usually a reason why they go out of fashion. Kermit, Elmo, Waldo, Adolf. You know, if you're a dictator or get named after a Muppet, that name's going to decline. But with girls' names, it's just taste. So how do you know if you've picked a good name for your kid? Well, I'll give you a couple of uh, ways to figure it out. One, it's the only kid in your class with that name, but not the only kid that anyone's ever heard with that name. Two, a lot of people say, oh, that was on our list. And you especially want the people to, who've named kids who say that to have kids younger than your own kid. So that means you're ahead of the trend. Unless the trend is Briley, you need to avoid the Briley trend. So what's in a name? Nothing. It's really all context. I mean, I've known total weaklings named Hunter. I've known cool guys named Mort. You don't believe me? My friend Morton was just about the coolest kid in high school. And when you're cool, they call you sport. How cool was Mort? He named his band, speaking of great names, he named his band, which was a rocking high school band. Best name I've ever heard a band. I don't know if a real band can have this name, but please, all you screenwriters who listen, name a band, a fictional band this. You ready? Samuel Gompers and the Union Men. I loved Mort's band. So here's another story about names. It's about last names, but it really proves the point. Going to tell you the story. I'm going to also have two digressions and one sub-digression. Here we go. So I want to tell you about a kid I went to high school with, and his name was Adam Schwartz. And Adam, very nice kid. Not the most popular kid. Now, here's a digression. You don't want to be the most popular kid in high school. You ever notice that? Someone who tells you I was pretty popular in high school. Well, is it the fact that they told you that is pretty poorly reflective of them? Or is it the fact that they were? And now here's my sub-digression. The most popular popular, like that yearbook category, the most popular, it's not really the most popular. You're really asking, if you, if you want to get the most popular, the question for everyone to fill out would be, who do you like the most? And whoever got the most votes would be the most popular. What it's really asking, what they're really naming is person who is perceived to have others who like them the most. And it's probably not even that. That, that most popular designation, that's a tough thing to deal with. All right, now I'm going to come up from those digressions. 
Ah, let me give you another one. So then how many friends do you really want? Again, we're talking about my friend Adam Schwartz, nice kid, not the most popular, had friends. How many friends do you want? How many friends should you tell your kids they should have? I have strong feelings about this. The answer, the right answer is enough. You want enough friends. All right, Mike, you want to pin me down? What's enough? You want one or three. Unlike cocktail garnishes, friends work best in even numbers. So if you have one best friend, besties, two people, a binary, that works really well. And if there is a group, make it a group of four. Now you're going to say, oh, three musketeers. Now remember, D'Artagnan joined. There were really four musketeers. Because when you have the three, you know, there's always two against one. There's always that dynamic. So you either want one best friend or a group of four of you, the Mount Rushmore of best friends. All right, now we're up. Now we're up from the digression. Here I am talking about Adam Schwartz. Nice kid. How many times do I have to say it? Because I'm going to slam him when I say, pretty dorky, you know, not cool. He nicknamed himself the Schwaz. And in fact, I think he ran for like class treasurer. And on the signs were, the Schwaz is back. And everyone said, who the hell is the Schwaz? And then we were told, oh, it's Adam Schwartz. He's running for class treasurer. Everyone said, that guy calls himself the Schwaz? And no one could believe it. And it just seemed like just calling yourself the Schwaz is a pretty bad move, a pretty dorky, horrible move. So then I get to college. And my, you know, I told you about my one uh, my one exposure to uh, the self-described Schwaz. And I meet a guy who's a couple years older. His name is John Schwartz. He drives a Miata. He's really cool. Uh, girls like him. The guys in the rival fraternity all want to beat him up. He's a lot of fun. He brings, uh, he brings props to parties, like things in neon and stuff. He's just like a really cool guy. And he calls himself the Schwaz. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's the Schwaz. The Schwaz is back. So what am I saying? I'm saying that it's all content. Everything about names is all context. Can Gary be cool? Yeah, of course Gary could be cool again. Ask Busey, ask W Talent, ask Sinise, ask Gary Hart. I mean, he's a cool presidential candidate, right? Ask Gary U.S. Bonds. Maybe he can't be cool. Ask Glitter, ask Gilmore. A name is what you make of it. Though, and this is my call to arms, if we don't make more Garys, they're soon going to go the way of the dodo. Or the DD, 33 DDs per million female babies born in the 1960s, unheard of since. Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, let me say it once again. Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. That's it for today's show. Our producer, Andrea Salenzi, is one, Andrea, is one above Hadley and one below Riley in the 2013 Girls Name Statistics. Our managing producer, Joel Meyer. Joel, one above Edward, one below Ezra. Joel, not better than Ezra. Andy Bowers is the executive producer. Andy, one, now this is not Andrew, this is Andy. There were 293 Andes in 2013. That's one below Waylon, one above Alexis. To sign up for the GIST's newsletter, which is an email that will send you every day when the GIST is ready, you can even play the show right from the email. Go to slate.com slash GIST email. It's a good way for you to know when the show is ready to go. The GIST, as a name for a show, one above the view, one below talk soup. Gary, Indiana. Gary, Indiana. Gary, Indiana. My home sweet home. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent and the host of Slate's Amicus podcast. 
On our latest episode, we talk about what goes through a justice's mind as the term ends and these great big blockbuster cases loom. What are the imperatives of their legacy, of politics, of their interpersonal relationships, and maybe even their egos? You'll find that by searching for Amicus in the iTunes store or by visiting slate.com slash podcasts.